0: A vague disclaimer is no one's friend. This podcast will look at episodes in relation to Buffy and Angel as a whole, and therefore contains spoilers for the entirety of both series. If you haven't seen all of Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel the series, go and watch them before you listen to this. Remember, you've been warned.
1: The hardest thing in this world is to live in it. that's why there's us, champions. We live as though the world were as it should be, to show it what it can be.
0: The Earth
2: is definitely doomed.
0: It's Tuesday, so it must be time to return to the Hellmouth. We're going through the Buffyverse episode by episode in a look back at Joss Whedon's iconic show. I'm MC, and I'm here with... Hi, I'm Andy.
1: And I'm David.
0: So we are talking about The Harvest, which is the second episode of the series. It originally aired on March 10th, 1997, the same day as Welcome to the Hellmouth, Like the first episode, it was written by Joss Whedon, but this one was directed by John T. Kretschmer, who only directed two Buffy episodes, this one and School Hard. So I'm really glad that we're looking at these two episodes separately, because looking back, they actually are quite different from each other. The first one is really kind of developing Buffy as a character. There's just so much Buffy stuff. And in this second one, it's really more we're going to explore what the actual premise of the show is, you know, how the Hellmouth works. They're introducing us to Sunnydale and introducing us to what will eventually be called the Scooby Gang.
2: Yeah, it did very much feel like sort of a different tone to the episode. I noticed that Buffy didn't really start quipping. Her famous quipping until the end. Yeah. uh, Which is something I think was... I mean, there was definitely comedy in the first episode because you have to set that tone up right away. But I noticed that some of her iconic stuff like the quipping... Didn't really come in until that final battle at the end of Harvest.
0: In Welcome to the Hellmouth, she's really trying to deny who she is. She's trying to deny that she's the slayer. And I think as part of that, she's trying to hide who she really is. And by hiding who she really is, she's she makes herself very much, you know, angry and, you know, closed off, which is not the Buffy that we eventually get to know. And in this one we do get to see more of that, where, you know, she's talking to Xander about decapitating a football player with the this little itty bitty knife.
1: Over these two episodes, it's all about that transition. But from the beginning of Welcome to the Hellmouth to the end of The Harvest, it's really her transition from denying everything that has happened to her in recent times and being the Slayer to coming to accept that this is simply who she has to be. It's also about the formation of the Scoobies, which
2: they are not called Scoobies yet, but it's also sort of this episode that kind of solidifies or starts solidifying those relationships that are going to be essential to the series.
0: We certainly have things that will go through the entire series. Like, I really think that Xander, his hatred of vampires, comes from this whole interaction with Jesse, with Jesse becoming a vampire and him having to stake his own best friend. That's kind of what colors his interactions with Angel and Spike going on. Oh, well, I mean, he's got lots of reasons to dislike them. But I think one of the main reasons is that he hates vampires so much because of what happened to Jesse. Even though Jesse is never mentioned again, it is very much <laughs> a defining <laughs> moment for Xander in his characterization. And here we also were introduced to Willow being the computer tech genius, which is something that'll play through her character throughout the entire series, even when they start to bring in her which storyline Willow's still the tech girl
1: and the research girl
0: and the research girl yes and of course in this we also get the lore about the hellmouth you know what little there is because they do kind of just they throw a little bit of lore at us and it's like now accept it this is what's going on but we're not really going to get into it further until season seven
1: it's a little hand wavy at this point yeah but it works
2: i love they call it boca del inferno i love that so much because I feel like I ate lunch there last week. <laughs> So, listeners, I'm from New Mexico, so anything with a vaguely Spanish-sounding name, it sounds like I ate there last week. (laughs) (laughs) So, there we go. That was my bad joke. But I also really like how they present the exposition, Mm -hmm. and I I think a lot of that is one credit to the writing, because they do throw in an odd joke here and there, but I also think it's like a huge credit to Anthony Stewart. Oh,
0: yeah, definitely. I mean, it's like, I could listen to Tony Head read the phone book, so. Yeah. Yeah.
1: Yeah, no, he sells everything he does. Yeah. For instance, I, I'm jumping ahead. The last scene where the kids are joking around and he says, we're doomed. That little bit shouldn't really work. It should kind of fall flat the way it's written. Yeah. But he sells it.
0: Not only does he sell it, but he sells it so well that they call it back all the way in the last yes. episode. They bring it back. That's the one thing that I can really remember all the time from that episode. Them talking about Buffy getting kicked out of school and it's like the earth is doomed. <laughs> The other's doomed, yeah.
2: Like I said, Tony had just such a great job because it doesn't sound luxury, yeah. and it doesn't actually sound pedantic, which yeah. is what we're going to get with a Wesley character later, which is meant to mirror first season Giles. Yeah. But I think because of Giles's experiences in his youth, he has something else going on. Tony had really put sort of pieces of Giles' character and the way he delivers those expositional lines. And I also noticed that Sarah Michelle Gellar does a great job with the exposition too Mm -hmm. and the script in general. Mm -hmm. A lot of pilots, the exposition is sort of this like, okay, once you get to the third or fourth episode, you'll be like, into it and this one you're there immediately and you actually want to know more of the lore which they never actually give you. Yeah I know I
0: adore the lore and I really wish we had gotten more of it. Oh yeah. Just talking about characters and personalities I have this note and this is no offense to Ken Lerner because I've seen him in other stuff but I have a a note that says kind of glad a bunch of hyena kids killed Principal Flutie because Snyder's got a much better (laughs) personality
2: (laughs) Oh I had a note that's saying that I really liked Oh, I thought he was funny Yeah no
1: I kind of miss him already to be honest but they're very different characters and i think in the long run snyder is is the better choice oh absolutely for sure i like Flu. he's a good character Mm -hmm. it wouldn't have worked over the length of the series
0: i mean part of it might be that i just adore armin shimmerman oh he's wonderful but also i don't think that you could have kept that i'm your pal i'm your your principal bob thing going for too long Right. I think that's really why it was not really working for me. I also think that Flutie needs
2: to be set up as this kind of kind, jovial guy. So it is more shocking when he's no longer around all of a sudden. Yeah. Because that's one of those moments in the series that's pretty defining in terms of, oh, wait, what? Yeah. He's not going to be a recurring character, but right. okay.
1: Right. That is, It's probably the first instance of not everyone is safe, mm-hmm. yeah. which really does distinguish Buffy from most other TV shows, yeah. even ones with a good deal of violence and action mm-hmm. and peril. It's like, you know, you always know, oh, the main characters, yeah. the ones we're familiar with, they're safe. They're not going to get killed. Oops, wrong. Of course, (laughs) Joss
0: wanted to throw that in from the very beginning. He wanted to have Eric Balfour in the opening credits for this episode, but he was not able to do that because, you know, of course, money. They weren't able to make two different versions of the credits, but he wanted to make it so that you didn't know who was going to be around for the entire series, you know, and make that that whole idea of, you know, nobody is safe. He does try to do it later on with Tara, which does not work. And then also they do do it with semi with Doyle on Angel. Of course, there were a whole Mm. bunch of background issues, right. behind-the-scenes issues with that. They were able to do it, you know, to an extent, but for these two episodes, he had wanted Eric Balfour to be part of the opening credits, which I don't think people would have been really surprised because the way the Jesse character is written, and we talked about this last time, there's not really much to sustain Jesse's character.
1: No, no. In fact, I, you know, I, I kind of remember, I, I have a note here. It, it, basically, when Jesse as vampire talks about human Jesse... And says, "What a loser he you is!" You agree with and, him? Uh, I mean, he's he's totally right. Yeah. The Jesse we see is there. There is nothing there. Mm-hmm. He is. He really is not anything good. He is
0: weirdly <laughs> obsessed with Cordelia, yeah. and that's basically the only thing that I know about him. I
1: don't even know about his relationship with Xander. Well, what little we see of it, he's kind of jerky to Xander. Yeah, he's not. He's not a nice person <laughs> at all. And there's nothing positive about Jesse, really. Except that he's Xander's friend. Yeah. He has a friend. We
0: care about him because Xander cares about him. <laughs> which I think is
2: almost a flaw in the writing. hmm Because the, he's so underwritten. And so I think I probably saw him dying before it happened. Yeah. Even way back when I first saw the episode, I was like, okay, he's a red shirt. Yeah. Because mm-hmm. some, some stakes have to happen. There has to be a... You know, he's there to lead the plot, which is he gets captured, Buffy has to fix it, He's he's kind of a nothing character, yeah. yeah. Which yeah, is not necessarily Eric Balfour's fault.
0: Yeah, no, I, I know no, he's a wonderful actor. I've seen him in other stuff where he's great, but I do think that Buffy. Uh, Part of the problem with the first season is that there was a learning curve to figure out how exactly the show was going to go and what the balance was going to be and how to introduce characters. And I really don't think they hit that stride until the second season. I mean, there are some wonderful episodes in the first season, but it's a little uneven. It also had no feedback. So these were all shot
2: all at one time, unlike some series where you get three or four in the can. You put them out. You sort of see what's working, what's not. Uh, This was shot like a British television season well they do it all you, in one. you record all of them and then you just put them out into the world
0: yeah and I don't think right. they were thinking that Buffy was actually going to come back because, I mean, it was a midseason replacement and they had all of them done at once. They probably just thought that Buffy was going to be like, you know, 12 random episodes of this little show about this movie that didn't do too well.
2: I mean, I'm sure there was an expectation that they hoped it did well. Yeah, well, no I mean, nobody ever
0: on. wants, you know, any of that stuff to, you know, fail. It's always it's really good if it goes somewhere, but I'm not expecting it to. Mm -hmm. Because, I mean, that is kind of what happens when you get a mid-season replacement that's only 12 episodes. That's kind of like a dumping ground for, okay, so we don't really know what to do with this. But I think the WB was kind of just discovering what it was trying to be. They were really turning into... The teen drama. This was the same year that Dawson's Creek came up, wasn't it? No, I think Dawson's Creek was the next. Year. Okay, so
2: it started in season two. I'm pretty sure.
1: Yeah. Well, WB, I think as as a newer independent channel, it was willing to take chances yeah. that the major networks probably wouldn't. Yeah. And so it was probably like, well, okay, we can't invest a ton into this, mm-hmm. but this might have legs. Yeah. So let's try it. And we need to fill this half a season somehow.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Okay, and of course this episode also introduces us to a character who's going to stay with us actually longer than characters who were introduced in the first episode. We are introduced to Harmony Kendall as played by oh, Mercedes yes. McNabb, who is yes. going to stay with Buffy and Angel up until Angel. She was in Angel's last episode. Yes. She yes. is actually, if you count the pilot episode, she is the longest running Buffy vs. actor because David Boreanaz was not in the original pilot of Buffy. He was right. just brought in to welcome in the Hellmouth. But Harmony was in the original pilot oh the unaired pilot yeah there's so much stuff we could say about the unaired pilot
1: oh yeah there's a lot
0: the main one being it's like who is that and what has she done with willow yeah
1: yeah yes it's yeah i mean willow is very different in the pilot yeah not just because it's a different actress i mean they wrote her differently she has very little to do yeah Quite frankly, I mean, there are a number of little differences between the pilot and the open. I mean, first of all, the entire harvest plot not existent, not there. It's, it's all just the welcome to the hellmouth stuff. There's no harvest.
2: I think we need to differentiate for our listeners that may not quite know. In terms of the pilot was considered to be Welcome to the Hellmouth, but there also was this unaired pilot, which I think was like a 20-minute presentation, I think presentation.
0: They it. it was never meant to air. In the notes that come with this episode, I will include a link to it because unfortunately for Joss Whedon, it's all up on YouTube.
1: <laughs> Joss has basically said it should be burned.
0: I'll, I'll tell him the same thing we said to george lucas about the star wars holiday special <laughs> the original pilot was not meant for airing it was just this is kind of what we're planning to do yeah it doesn't have yeah. angel but
2: like I, going back it does have harmony it does have harmony and, and jonathan it do- and jonathan who we'll get to know later on who we all love i love and i love danny strong he's such a fun and and i guess the trivia is he auditioned for xander and did not get the role yeah
0: that would have been interesting that would have been what different way to go yeah i don't think joss would have wanted to go there because i think that would have been a little too close to actually being Mm. joss (laughs) yeah except for the height yeah well yeah yeah because Danny Strong's a
2: hobbit he in is. a good way. Yeah. he's a good way.
1: Yeah, no, but the pilot is really interesting to watch. Yeah. Because there are, like, you know, the whole Willow being a very, a lesser character, really. Yeah. Although, interestingly, there are a couple of differences in how that's handled. Last week, we mentioned that Buffy seeks Willow out mm-hmm. in Welcome to the Hellmouth. In the pilot, Willow approaches Buffy, having said, oh, they said you're you're new and they've asked me to help you get acclimated. Yeah. And yeah. and also when she gets, you know, she walks off with the vampire to in this case the theater set, Willow actually gets fed on.
0: Oh, really? It's been a yes. long time since I've seen the pilot. Yes. But I forgot that bit.
1: Until I just watched it recently to prepare for this, I did not remember that either. It was kind of shocking, quite frankly, to mm-hmm. see that and go, "Oh, wow. That's interesting."
2: I see where they were trying to go with the casting because it's not Alison Hannigan I guess yeah. her name is Riff Ralph Regan. Reagan. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. I really see what they were trying to do which was not have this Hollywood homely actress because let's face it Alison Hannigan is absolutely stunningly beautiful. Alison
0: Hannigan made me realize things about myself. So But she's tiny. And Riff Regan
2: is not. She's a larger woman, and I think that was really great. I think what they didn't find, though, was an actress that could deliver. Yeah.
1: Yes, I hate to, like, come down on Riff Regan, but... The performance doesn't grab you. Mm-hmm. It's well, I think part of that is again that Willow is very underwritten compared to where she would be in the series. Mm-hmm. But when you see Allison Hannigan in Welcome to the Hellmouth, she jumps out at you, yeah, immediate. And Riff Regan doesn't.
0: Riff Regan was missing the vulnerability that they wanted for Willow's character because they definitely mm-hmm. wanted that shy, mousy kind of character,
1: yeah. The awkwardness is much more played up in the actual series yeah. than in the pilot.
2: But also she, had a Willow, Alison Hannigan's Willow, had a lot of room to grow. Yeah. And mm-hmm. she was also a much more experienced actress. Honestly, yeah. she'd been doing things since, you know, she was a, a young kid, much like Sarah Michelle Geller had been working. So, you know, there's a certain amount of experience, finding your light, things like that, that also factor into casting decisions.
0: Yeah. All right, so just back on to The
1: Harvest. Yes. So, yes, Harmony, we were talking about Harmony. Yeah, Harmony, yeah. And, you know, Harmony, oh, Harmony never changed. Yeah. And really, she doesn't.
0: Interesting (laughs) trivia note, she is the only cast member who was actually in high school when they were filming. She was 16 at the time. Oh, I
1: didn't realize
2: that. I recognized her from Adam's family. Yes, and I was like, "Hey, that's the girl from Adam's family." I don't think at the time that the episode aired, I had much thoughts about Harmony, but now I have lots. I am still convinced her character from the Adams family is Harmony. That's great. I love it. She moved to California and Sunnydale. (laughs) So I do like. We were talking about that. We really like that they have used. I think Joss and the producers recognize a talent or a professionalism in some of these folks and want to use them again and again Mm -hmm. i actually have a quote from danny strong that said they used jonathan when they needed something done by a student they just had jonathan do it to keep the continuity of the world which Mm -hmm. is why i think buffy the vampire slayer stands out as such a landmark show is because there is a continuity of the worlds well joss is
0: incredibly loyal to the people that he likes i mean i was just watching dollhouse and. a of course, Amy Acker is in that. And mm-hmm. when you go on to Avengers and Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., you see a lot of Buffyverse actors who will show up in whatever roles. I mean, you have characters like Jonathan Woodward who showed up mm-hmm. He was when it was just Buffy, Angel, Firefly. They used to call him Joss Whedon's hat trick because he was on all three shows. And there was another actor, I think it was... Carlos Jackot. Yeah. Was the oh, other yes. hat trick. Yeah. yeah. And I think those are the two who are the hat tricks. Which, if there is an actor, that Joss likes he's going to reuse them as many times as he can because he was good at recognizing people that are talented and can be useful to you know set up the continuity and I mean you have a character like Jonathan who does start off he's an extra Mm -hmm. and in the pilot in the pilot presentation he's just standing in the line for the bronze and then he grows into being this fully realized character and it's the same thing with Harmony she only shows up so that Cordelia has somebody to bounce dialogue off of and then she Mm -hmm. grows into her own character she ends up becoming a series regular on Angel towards the end of its run and has a complete storyline. Oh,
1: yeah. Harmony is really is sort of this great through line for the the entire Buffyverse. She's just always there. (laughs) That whole scene with Harmony is just fascinating. First of all, watching Harmony and Cordelia try to write a computer programmer as a programmer, I'm horrified. (laughs) It's kind of scary.
0: That scene really kind of foreshadows some of the dark side of Willow. (laughs)
1: Yeah. It really yeah. does and
2: also even I knew that's not how computers work. Yeah. Right. Like when she's right. like hit deliver and I'm like really? Yes.
1: Oh yeah, no that was just oh god. It's oh painful.
2: But it shows Willow growing in herself. Yeah.
1: Oh yes, she it's obviously it's a an early instance of her finding that kind of confidence. Yeah. Even though it, it's malicious here. Yeah. But it's she's standing up for herself and for Buffy because they're having the whole conversation about Buffy and kind of disparaging Buffy. And she's like, well, yeah, I'm going to. I'm going to mess with them.
0: One nitpick that I found that actually in looking through nitpicks on this episode online, I haven't found anybody mention this. Cordelia makes a mention of how they're going to the bronze because there's no cover. How come later in the episode, the bouncer is counting a lot of money? When the vampires are coming up. I never noticed Maybe
1: that. Maybe he's dealing drugs. Just a thought.
0: I, that was the only <laughs> explanation that I could find for it.
1: I also want to point out the fake ID business in Sunnydale must be booming. You would think so. Because the bronze serves alcohol. Yeah. <laughs> and everyone there is in high school. <laughs> but they're
2: not drinking it's like an all-ages club yeah. which i've been to you can be in there if you're 18 or above but you can't drink but yeah these kids are right these kids are 15 so
0: i think the bronze works the way whatever the fake id business has got to be good anyways because you got like hundreds of vampires they're gonna need ids that say that they're not 100
2: true. good point very true
0: i know it's been pointed out online it's like what even is the
2: bronze they don't have clubs just for kids and they did yeah back in the 90s uh, here here we go when i was in high school in the early 90s there were dedicated teen only clubs they obviously didn't serve liquor but you could find me at one at all hours of the day and night probably wasn't as cool as the bronze but there was a lot more cure playing in the background
1: what was sprung monkey didn't play at your club
0: (laughs) no no it was mostly the cure in depeche mode but not live yeah i was gonna say it can't be live I wish. Sprung Monkey did perform again in this episode when Buffy's trying to leave the school grounds. The song Right My Wrong is played and the band that plays at the Bronze is Dashboard Prophets who did Wearing Me Down and Ballad for Dead Friends. I think it's interesting because Cordelia has
2: this line. She's like, I love this song. And I'm like, really? That song, Cordelia? (laughs) That 90s grunge thing? That just doesn't seem very in character for what Cordelia probably liked.
0: But, you know.
1: She probably liked it for about two minutes
0: maybe well ballad for dead friends i think works so well for the scene where it's used for the scene when the vampires are approaching the bronze in the 90s slow motion walk yes Oh, yes. It takes me right back to that whole scene. That's like, this defines Buffy in the first season for me. Mm-hmm. I actually I really love listening to music from Buffy. I have like an entire Buffy soundtrack. I mean, they did release several soundtracks. They have one of like all of the score. And then they have one of them, which I think is just called the Buffy the Vampire Slayer soundtrack. And then another one, which is Radio Sunnydale.
2: Yeah, I have both of those. And I think one was music from about, I would say, seasons one through... Three. Mm. Hmm. Sounds about right. And then the rest is like four through seven because I think the Biff naked stuff from season four is on the second soundtrack. No, I I don't know. I'd have to look that up. Yeah. Both soundtracks are actually really good. Both
0: soundtracks are very lacking. It's what they could get at the time. So I do mm-hmm. have my iTunes list where it's as much as I can collect.
2: Well, Buffy was also one of the first shows where they didn't have music licensing issues. Yeah. So if you look at something like the the Wonder Years or whatever. Yeah that couldn't be released on dvd because the licensing was only for x amount of time on broadcast yeah so i think it was really a smart thing they used these sort of either up-and-coming or local bands mm. and
0: also a lot of the time they were having the bands actually in the episode because mm-hmm. there was so much stuff at the bronze I, yeah even roswell which came i guess two or three seasons after Buffy, Mm -hmm. they had licensing issues. And that's because the songs were mostly, it wasn't like a band playing. It was just the song playing over. So it was like really easy to replace. Meanwhile, if you have a band at the Bronze, you have a band at the Bronze and they're playing whatever they're playing. Dawson's Creek notoriously
2: had licensing issues. Paula Cole only gave that I Don't Want to Wait song for a certain amount of time. Oh, really? So on any of the re-releases, if you go back and watch Dawson's Creek, It's kind of a guilty pleasure, sue me, whatever. (laughs) The theme song is totally replaced. Oh, really? By a song by the Canadian Jan Arden. The theme song of Dawson's Creek is about the only
0: thing I still like from Dawson's Creek. I like Pacey.
2: And we digress.
0: (laughs) Dawson's Creek was very much a part of Buffy when it was first airing because Dawson's Creek aired right after Buffy. Absolutely. During seasons, I guess, two and three, because by seasons four, it was Angel. Angel, right. Back to back with Angel. Yeah.
2: But yeah, Dawson's Creek came on right after Buffy and I looked it up. It came out the next year. Okay. It
0: started in nineteen ninety-eight. So I think
2: that that was a midseason replacement also.
0: If I recall correctly, Buffy replaced some sort of drama. I think it was called Savannah, which I didn't watch, but I don't recall hearing about it afterwards.
2: So I think this was the only show I had ever watched on the WB up to that point. Now actually no, there was not an official WB. WGN, which is a,
0: a subsidiary, yeah.
2: A subsidiary of WB were playing the Buffy episodes in my market. Yeah. And that actual WB channels didn't
0: launch for a while. So the history
2: of the WB. Well,
0: I mean, there's a lot of people who might not even know that the WB was once upon a time a thing because now it's the CW. True. True. And that's sort of, married two networks together
2: and but I think that Buffy very much laid the foundation of what both the WB and the CW have oh yeah tried to do with their genre things I mean Supernatural is a direct
0: descendant of Buffy actually I will counter that Supernatural is a direct descendant of Charmed oh I I won't get into it here because that's not about Buffy but Supernatural is a direct descendant of Charmed. It really is. But yeah, no, certainly Buffy was kind of the first supernatural soap opera that the WB had. And they've kept with that for years and years and years because they do have Supernatural. They have the Vampire Diaries. And they've tried it Roswell, as I mentioned before. These are all shows that kind of have the same idea that Buffy really developed.
2: Mm-hmm. Not as good. I like some of those shows, but you know buffy is buffy yeah
0: buffy was yeah it was buffy it was lightning in a bottle and i think even joss has had trouble establishing shows in the same way that it hit with buffy oh
2: absolutely i think that's why he moved on yeah to film at some point hopefully he'll come back
0: soon i think they also gave him lots and lots of monies <laughs> <laughs> yeah
1: that would do it yeah
0: yeah and he was sick of stuff being canceled <laughs> Yes. Yeah. So back onto the harvest.
1: Oh, oh, the harvest. Uh, yeah, that's right. <laughs> oh, that's <laughs> we're right. That's the what we talking about.
0: <laughs> We've talked about the characters, but we haven't talked as much about the actual plot of the episode. And that is Xander is focused on trying to save Jesse. Meanwhile, Buffy is focused on actually trying to stop the harvest, which is Luke is going to be used as a vessel to collect energy to release the master. And this is really kind of developing the master as the main bad guy for this season. And I love the master. He gets a bad rap. Not a bad rap, but I think people forget about
2: him and I just I love him I, he's sly he's interesting Mark Metcalf is amazing
0: what happens yeah. is vampires get taken for granted by later on in the series <laughs> vampires become cannon fodder they're just what Buffy stakes at the beginning of the episode to set up what's actually going to be happening
2: oh that's a really good point
0: point. and all of the other true, vampire yeah. bad guys we have end up developing into more of character outside of being bad guys because you bring Spike and then Spike has his entire storyline and Angel, of course, has his storyline. Meanwhile, the Master, he only interacts with Buffy the one time. All of his scenes are very separate from everything. But he is the prototype vampire on the show. Well, I guess Darla's really the prototype vampire since she's the first one who appeared.
2: Yes, but she's right. terrible and simpering and we don't want yeah. to talk about her until we get to Angel, Yeah, probably. but the
0: Master set up what the big bad in the series is supposed to be. And Mark Mac- Kaft does a wonderful job in playing the character. He's so funny with a character that should really just be terrifying. And we'll talk more about it in other episodes where he, you know, has funny little lines where it's like, oh my God, why is this funny? It's horrific.
1: Even here in The Harvest, he has the, uh, you've got something in your eye bit. Oh, that's amazing. Again, at this point, we're very familiar with it. It doesn't quite have the punch it did at the time, but it's a great line.
0: (laughs) It reminds me of The Dark Knight, when you have the Joker do his pencil trick, and I see that, and I'm like, Buffy did it first. Yeah. Yeah. The line is great, because
2: he's like, you failed me. Tell me you're sorry. And he's like, I'm sorry. And he's like, you got something in your eye. It's just, it's a brilliant moment.
1: Yeah, it's set up wonderfully. There are a couple of great lines here that are just great lines- Just in and of themselves, without the context that, like Luke's, you've been upgraded to bait. Yeah. Is just a wonderful bit of dialogue. Yeah. The vampires really do get some of the best lines.
2: (laughs) I listened to the commentary of both The Hellmost and Harvest, and Joss talks a little bit about casting Mark Metcalf. And he said that a lot of people came in and read that as a very one note mustache twirling villain. And Mark saw the comedy in it. I also, I trained as an actor for the first half of my life, more than that. And the vampire prosthetics make it really, really hard to talk. And I'm sure his was custom fit. But his diction is on point. Mm -hmm. Like, he really makes those... He uses the vowels and he uses those... Explosive sounds and I think that has to do with and I looked him up some of his theater training yeah
0: same thing mm. with Anthony Stewart had Joss actually apologized to Eric Balfour for giving him so many lines with s's in them
1: mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> yeah
0: because the prosthetics were just not working with him actually speaking
1: the thing about villains that many people don't get is if you play them as mustache twirling one note characters they're really dull mm-hmm. you can't I mean you can't Play a villain like that. But if you write or play a villain like that, it's going to hurt your story. Yeah. I mean, certainly Joss wrote the master in a way that enabled that humor that sardonic humor yeah. to come through and Metcalf obviously saw that and really played and it really works
2: trivia fact in the script it's never mentioned anywhere else but in the script the master's name is Heinrich Joseph Nest
0: yes there we go There's
2: a little Buffy trivia for and
0: he is supposedly 600 years old oh didn't know that one there
2: you go well, so going to back know. to the actual plot because I think I derailed this back to a character but yeah. that's okay an mm-hmm important yeah. character.
0: They're really kind of establishing us that the harvest is going to be the end of the world if it happens. I mean, I don't know if they're exaggerating it because certainly they have other apocalypses, pokalai <laughs>
1: Apocalypses. Apocalypses, yes.
2: There is a joke about that, I think, in one of the later seasons. like
0: No, the plural of apocalypse. Plural of apocalypse.
1: They have enough of them. They need that word, yes.
0: I think that's actually... Riley says that. Yes, you're right. It was Riley. I would guess it's probably not like the actual apocalypse like we see in later seasons. You look at this episode and then you look at the episode The Wish, where... Buffy never comes to Sunnydale. I'm guessing the harvest worked there. So it's not so much that the world ends. It's just that Sunnydale gets overrun by vampires.
1: Right. It's a localized apocalypse. Yeah. That amused me. It is a bit counterintuitive. So yes. (laughs) But that's essentially what it is. It really isn't an apocalypse yeah. per se. It is a city-wide catastrophe. Yeah.
2: I don't think the Master has those grand ambitions yeah. of a world apocalypse the same way that Angelus does or Spike and Drew or Adam, like or Glory, any of the other villains. He's just sort of like, I want hot
0: and cold running blood. I'm fine. This is my little world. We're good. Spike doesn't have apocalyptic ambitions. That's a major plot point. In oh, it's two. Drusilla's apocalypse. Yeah.
2: apocalyptic ambitions yeah. that
0: because she's the psycho's goes with the master just wants to have blood it is established in the wish that he's not even about the whole ritual of feeding he just wants blood and power yeah which you know smart guy and the order of aurelius tends to stay
2: more underground yeah and have rules that we never get into we talked about this in the last episode partially i'm sure they go underground because of the master's face yeah he can't be out like roaming around in non-vamp face yeah
0: which is you know he's got fruit punch Mouth. And they do establish later on in Angel that Angelus isn't even a member of the Order Aurelius because he's considered too much of a wild card for them.
2: Ah. Hmm.
0: Interesting.
2: I know we were talking about that a lot in the last episode, is the whole mythos is the Order of Aurelius. I've seen Angel less times than I've seen Buffy.
0: We will be getting to that later on. I have such a soft spot in my heart for Angel. Oh, I love Angel.
1: Oh, I like Angel a lot. Angel's great. Yeah,
0: well, I'm just saying that actually. In some ways, I actually like Angel more than I like Buffy, which, can't like, you know, but... kill.
2: Shut your mouth.
0: <laughs> yeah, also my favorite season of Angel is season four, so come at me. <laughs> oh, I like that season, the one with
2: Jasmine. Yeah, I like yeah. that season.
1: So you're a resident heretic. Oh. <laughs>
2: here's one we'll get
0: to later I don't hate Riley I don't either there we go hey we're (laughs) maybe we'll do an entire episode we'll just all yell out unpopular opinions all episodes see who can top the other
1: the unpopular fan theory special (laughs) yes
0: absolutely one note that I did write down about this episode was apparently the tricking the vampire with sunrise was something that was originally written for the Buffy movie but it ended up not being used so Joss recycled it into this episode with Buffy and Luke which I really Mm. think it kind of defines Buffy in just how inventive she is in what she does I think that really
2: becomes one of her
0: defining
2: traits and why I love her so much she's got this ability to improv and I think that comes from her lack of training as a slayer Yeah, because she's not set in those little
0: boxes Yeah, I can see little nuggets of that coming out in the Buffy movie because there is that moment in the Buffy movie where I guess it's the flaming cross and she's got like the hairspray and Mm -hmm. she's like it's my keen fashion sense and she ends up emulating the vampire I mean that Mm. is kind of reminiscent of this moment and something that will come out in her being really inventive in the way she will take out bad guys
2: like the symbol yeah when she throws the symbol that's just genius which had to be cut out in the UK for being too violent yes right I think this episode also shows that Buffy really is a very natural leader yeah and that Giles is already starting to acknowledge and listen To that,
0: we don't really get to see many other watcher and slayer relationships up close. I mean, we meet other watchers and we meet other slayers, but we don't really see them interacting. But certainly, we get a taste of what those relationships are like Buffy uses Giles as a confidant and a resource rather than somebody to actually tell her what to do right Mm -hmm. which is a really good way because if she's going to be putting her life on the line why shouldn't she be the one calling the shots
2: and I think Giles recognizes that pretty quickly I mean there's definitely a season one frustration that she's not towing the line yeah but at the same time I think he very quickly comes to respect her and actually comes to accept that yes, Xander and Willow were going to be part of this too.
1: Something that I notice is when he gives the whole sort of Vampire 101 speech after they come back from saving Willow. My immediate thought was, why is he just telling all this to civilians? Oh, again, I'm
0: going to bring up The Wish. We have the episode The Wish where Buffy never comes to Sunnydale. Giles ends up collecting random people in Sunnydale who have found out Mm -hmm. about vampires and creates his own little Scooby gang. So I almost think Giles, as we find out later on, is not really your typical watcher. He did have like this dark history to him. So I think that he is a bit of an outcast in a way. So he likes to have this little family group.
1: Yeah, I agree. That's true. It's just, it struck me as odd that he was going that route this early. True. Again, it's the way the episode runs, it works. You don't really think about it when you first see it because it just happens and you move on. But in retrospect, it was sort of odd. And I'm sort of like, this is probably not in the Watcher manual. Definitely not. Buffy's not your typical Slayer. Giles is not your typical watcher. Mm -hmm. And that, to a great extent, is why they're so successful as a team. It
2: says, as we find out more information about that council and how absolutely misogynistic their entire underlying Mm -hmm. thing is, it really says something about who Giles is as a person. Yeah. Yes, And his respect for, Mm -hmm. because slayers aren't really respected by the council. They're tools of the council. They're weapons. They're weapons. And Giles recognizes in this girl, because she's 15, so I can call her a girl. Isn't she 16?
1: Oh no, she's, no, sorry, 15, yeah.
2: Or she's just turned 16. Yeah, she's very young. Because her birthday's like in December. It's in January. January? Yeah. Okay. okay, so it's usually right mid-season, which in season two she's turning
0: 17. Capricorn on the cusp of Aquarius.
2: Well, there you go. She does say that in an episode, but I think it does show really what kind of character, what kind of person Giles is is mm-hmm. that he's able to recognize the gifts of not just Buffy but of
1: Xander to an extent mm-hmm. and Willow don't know if we really know this but what is the typical life expectancy of a slayer once they become the slayer
0: 17 the trial that they go through in, oh, when yeah, they the, turn uh, 17 that thing yeah 18 that's only done if they live to be that age it's meant to weed them out yeah All I right. really
2: do think it's meant to weed them out so oh yeah, yeah. we can definitely no, talk about that when we
0: they want to keep the them young and they want to keep them malleable
1: right yeah my question is years as Slayer does Buffy hold the record
0: I think it's Probably Nikki Wood was the oldest mm. Slayer before Buffy. And I think Buffy, right. by the end of it, might have outlived Nikki. Nikki was pregnant during her trial. Right. So when she was right. 17 when she was pregnant. And he must have only been about five or six when she died, based on what he looked there
2: like. There were a series of books. They're not really canonical, but they're interesting. And I had yeah. them all, which was yeah. Tales of the Slayer. right? And they were short stories, many of them by the Buffy writers, yeah. like Jane Spinson, Rebecca Rand And they're actually really good. There are really some cool stories in there. Mm-hmm. Just a right. little note. So do we want to talk about Xander? We can talk about Xander. Because I have things to say about Xander. All right. I'm sure, MC, that you have things to say about Xander.
0: I have a note that just says Xander bugs me.
2: As I watch this again for the millionth time, he doesn't just bug me, he bugs the fuck out of me. I wrote down a couple of lines and we did talk last time about Xander is the nice guy. His expectations, if he does these things for Buffy, she's gonna let him in her pants or at Mm -hmm. least into the smoochies. But there were these, oh, mm."
0: I also have a problem with some of Xander's toxic masculinity. Absolutely. Because he has that one line where it's just like, I understand I'm less than a man less than i'm inadequate i'm less than a man because yeah, buffy is taking the lead because buffy's taking charge and it's like dude she's like a super powered superhuman thing it has nothing to do with whether or not you're a man the
2: other line he has in that scene right before that is i knew she says well i'm the slayer and he's like i knew you'd throw that on my face yeah, yeah and I'm like Xander how do you know you've known the girl for something like two days yeah three days and now you throw how you know she's gonna react to something that just confusing and odd and presuming that he already knows her when all he's doing is idolizing her.
0: hearing a line like that actually makes me think of Xander's upbringing because we do find out that his family was abusive uh, both to yeah. him and to each other and I knew you would throw that back in my face is so much a line that a husband and wife in the middle of an intense fight with each other would use
2: well that is a really excellent point and one i hadn't really thought about before and i'm not saying i hate xander all the time sometimes i adore him and he does have the best lines and Nikki brandon's delivery is so funny and i think he does grow and change as a person and by the seventh season he really has figured things out Mm -hmm. a lot more but in these first couple of seasons i just he goes and follows her when she's told him not to when willow's told him not to She doesn't need the backup. Mm -hmm. What she does need is someone else in that tunnel for more exposition dump. Yeah. So that's one of the purposes he serves... Anyone else thoughts? Because I have a lot to... (laughs) Xander infuriates me, especially in the first two seasons.
0: There's a lot of problems with Xander in the first season. The the fact that he does fixate on Buffy. We do find out later that he's completely aware of how Willow feels about him. And he just won't acknowledge it. Uh, But we will get into that more when we get to the pack. He has this idea of what a man is supposed to be and what a woman is supposed to be. And I think that's part of the reason why Xander does get better later on. In being around Buffy and being around Willow and and even being around Cordelia and Anya, he starts to get an idea that, oh no, women are actually people who are all different than each other and can have strengths and I am not less of a man because they can do things that I can't.
2: And that can also be seen, I just thought of this, as the influence of Giles in his life. That's also true, yeah. Giles has no problem with these women taking charge and being leaders, which is different from what the council thinks. Mm -hmm. I think Giles really is a good father figure for all of them, but knowing about Xander's family's abusive past, Giles really has to have meant a lot to Xander. Mm -hmm. So I did a a little bit of research because it's a word that was used a lot in the 90s, which is the word friend zone. Yeah. And that, right, which is what I think that Xander, the whole friend zone concept, which a lot of feminists, including myself, have really debunked. Mm -hmm. But I read that the word actually first came about on an episode of Friends, which was in 1994. So that's really caught on by the time we hit 1997. If I
0: remember correctly, it was the one with the blackout. It's the one with the blackout. Referring to Ross and Rachel's relationship, which is just a whole big other can of feminist worms
2: for me. You know, I know that I used the word friend zone in the 90s, talking about someone I was crushing on that didn't like me back. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm just in the friend zone. But I don't think I meant it as... I'm going to do all these things to them because I feel like I'm entitled to having sex with them. It was just
0: sort of a lamentation of like, well, I guess they don't like me back. I think also as the word has become more popular, the meaning has mutated so that it is kind of like, if I put in enough friendship quarters, sex will come out eventually.
2: Which I think was what Xander's doing here. Yeah,
0: I can see that. So yeah, yeah,
2: infuriating Xander, that's what I
0: had. And yeah, Xander is very much, he gets aggressive in terms of the whole... Buffy doesn't want to be with me Buffy would rather be with Angel meanwhile he does completely ignore the fact that Willow has a thing for him and he just kind of hopes that it will go away eventually and thankfully Willow does have enough sense to be like screw you I'm gonna go hook up with Seth Green because Seth Green is fucking adorable
2: right I don't even think we've talked about Angel yet either we
0: have not talked a lot about we talked about Angel in Welcome to the Hellmouth but we haven't talked about him in The Harvest yet and we do get a little bit more of Angel and we get a bit more of the Buffy and Angel chemistry which I gotta be honest I never really felt especially in the first season it's funny that I should be so fond of Angel as a series because I didn't really like the character of Angel I liked Angelus And actually, when Angelus finally came on the show, I was like, oh, my God, David Boreanaz can actually act.
2: Which he can't in the first season. I'm sorry. He's really. He's wooden as fuck. Really not good. And his line delivery is just. Yeah. Why don't you go fight them? He's like, because I'm afraid.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah, I mean, especially here in the early episodes, he's really... It's another of those, yeah, they're not there yet things.
0: And I'm not sure they really knew what they wanted to do with him. Because yes, they did do all of the episodes at the same time, but that doesn't mean that they had them all written at the same time. So right. I think for the first episode, maybe they didn't know he was gonna be a vampire. They just knew they wanted a mysterious hunky guy. And so Which is interesting because I I mentioned
2: in the last episode that I I first watched this episode with my roommates. And when he shows up again, I think all of us were like, I wonder what his deal is. And I'm not sure which one of us said it. We're like, I
0: bet he's a good vampire. (laughs) We called it. We nailed it. We called that. I don't think I guessed it. It was just kind of like, okay, what's the deal with this guy? Is he like a prisoner of the vampires or what? Is he going to be like some sort of vampire Hmm. hunter? David's performance, he has become quite a good actor he mm-hmm. did really well on angel and bones has just finished up now oh really finally or it's going to be finishing up he is pretty bad in these first i couple think episodes. he'd only been on like married with children before mm. this he did like a guest appearance as one of kelly bundy's boyfriends or something and that was like it
1: yeah his acting experience was fairly limited at yeah. this
0: point and it really shows and i did not really buy the chemistry between him and buffy i'm like okay i guess he's cute but other than that I don't really see what else he's got going for him. He shows up, he says cryptic things, he goes away.
2: And I did buy into their relationship when I was originally watching, because honestly, I will kind of go with what the writers stick in front of me for the most part in most television. Not to say I don't ship other things in this show, but we can get to that at a later (laughs) date. So I I was buying into it, but also I think at the time of my life, the broody guy with mystery was, I was all about that. Mm -hmm. You know, I was 22, I of course wanted that. When in actuality, you want Seth Green.
0: You know, you want an Oz in your life. Was there ever a more perfect guy on Buffy than Oz, other than Giles? No, he's perfect.
2: He's absolutely perfect. Oz and Giles. And then Tara's the perfect woman. But we'll get to that one later, too.
0: I think at this point, does anybody have anything that they really want to get in on this episode? The
2: only thing I had was how so funny Cordelia's line is about, I don't want it because it's more expensive, but because it costs costs more."
1: more. Yes, Yes, that is a great line.
2: It's so Cordy. You know, she's got this whole villain thing going on. But I think by this episode, you're sort of like, am I going to love to hate her? I think I'm going to love to hate her. Because Charisma Carpenter is so winning.
0: And they couldn't even keep Cordelia as a villainous character or an antagonistic character throughout the entire first season. By the end of it, she's already on their team because it's like, well, we need to be able to write her more than just... Oh, you know, I'm going to say some bad stuff about Buffy and then go away.
1: Well, that's again, it's the playing your villains as a one note character. again. Mm -hmm. That's just dull. So even if Cordelia was going to continue being the sort of antagonistic character that she was introduced as, if they were going to use her as much as they did. Yeah. They were going to have to give her something more than that.
2: She is in the opening credits, Charisma Carpenter. So I figure that they did have some kind of...
1: yeah. I mean, there's probably partly planned.
2: fleshed out plan that, but I, mean, I just wanted to highlight that line because I think it's one of the. It's, it's first of all, it line. gives you major insight in just that mm-hmm. one line into exactly who Cordelia is, who her minions are.
0: Yeah, her harmonies mm-hmm.
2: and Aura doesn't show up in this one, but she does show up frequently, and what that character is going to be like, and just that one line and that one delivery, you really see a very clear picture of who this person is, and I mm-hmm. think that's
1: pretty genius. I wanted to bring up. We talked last episode about how cell phones changed everything in drama and I think this is where we see the first very minor example of that where there's ah, I forget who it is now I'm, but Buffy comes back and says is there any word from somebody and it was like oh well if you had cell phones you would know that and one other weird thing about this episode for me that kind of breaks the fourth wall almost for me during Harmony and Cordelia's conversation in the computer class mm-hmm. and they're talking about Buffy this guy literally jumps into their <laughs> conversation it's like i mean he literally jumps into shot and it's like what are you doing who are you talking about Buffy?" yeah it's like huh you're talking about the new girl and he was never seen again and never seen again just dramatically it's like this guy he's not there he isn't referenced at all you don't see him and literally jumps into shot yeah (laughs) i'm like really (laughs) I would have thought we had drama down better than this by now. Yeah.
2: Which also brings up the fact, and I may be the only one that noticed this, as someone that works in social services, how do all the students know what happened at Buffy's last school? Yeah. Yeah. Because that would be, I'm not sure what kind of violation it is in the school system, but like, let's call it like a school HIPAA violation, right? You have yeah. records, teachers yeah. and principals and are not supposed to tell students about the records of other students. So how the heck does everybody know? Obviously, it's a plot device, but as someone that works in social services, it really bugged the crap out of me.
1: My assumption would be just, she burned down the gym. That was probably in the news. Maybe. That's my guess.
0: If we look at, I mean, the Buffy movie is not actually canon, but it's canon-ish. It's canon adjacent. And they do, over the closing credits, they do have people being interviewed for television. So, I mean, in this reality in which the gym gets burned down... They would be reporting on the gyms. Maybe, yeah. I, I also think it's plot device even very suspect. Yeah. So does anybody else have any comments on The Harvest?
1: I'm going to miss Luke.
0: Luke was a very good bad guy. Brian Thompson's yeah. always good. Brian Thompson does come back again. Of course he, he does. does. He's the judge. He
1: does. But he's not Luke. There's something about Luke's personality that's just very appealing as a villain.
0: I was actually really upset because they do have a line about him being caught. And the master's like, oh, I can't remember the last time that happened. And Luke's like, I think it was like 1600 Madrid. He caught me sleeping. I was really pissed off that it was too early for it to have been Holtz from Angel. Because I really would have liked for it to be. But the timing was just completely off. Tear down the face for missed opportunities.
2: Yeah, I'm gonna have to go out and find my Tales of the Slayer books. I think they're in some cupboard somewhere. Because I really do want to take another look at those because they yeah, were really I don't think I ever
0: read any of the Tales from the Slayer books. I did read various Buffy tie-in books that came out during the time of the show, which are ridiculously not canon. But the Tales of the Slayer ones were always a bit more... Canonical, just because they did not have to do with Buffy and the gang. Right,
2: and they were written by members of the show, the members of the writing staff, so. I will have to look through my enormous boxes of
0: books. Okay, so if we're out of things to talk about on The Harvest, other than the fact that I think we all enjoyed The Harvest? Yes, absolutely. If you like Welcome to the Hellmouth, you'll like The Harvest, because while they are separate episodes, they work as one, so that's gonna be it for this week next time we'll be reviewing the witch until then grr
1: arg grr arg
0: I'd like to thank everyone who downloaded our first podcast. We were really happy with how it turned out. You can find us all over the web. We're on both iTunes and Stitcher, and we've also uploaded onto YouTube. Just search for Return to the Hellmouth. You can leave us comments at our website, returntothehellmouth.com, on Tumblr and Facebook at returntothehellmouth, or on Twitter at hellmouthreturn, or you can email us at returntothehellmouth@gmail.com. at gmail.com. We'll be sure to read them on the show. See you on Tuesday for The Witch.
1: Grr. Arg!